So as, uh, as has been announced, we're, we're going to discuss women's roles this morning. Uh, um, and we're hoping for uh, black and white in a uh, gray, graying world that we live in. So hence my outfit. In case, you know. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> um, so today we're going to be taking up uh, the subject of women's roles in the church. And I say we because I have uh, been asked on behalf of the elders to, to speak from this subject. And largely our purpose um, for today's subject is um, that uh, there's been some confusion in this area and we want to clarify some points where there's been confusion. Um, this topic has been controversial throughout much of church history um, and has been considered by many theologians and great scholars over the years. People have written doctorate uh, theses on, on this subject. And so today, with a, and they've come down on a very wide, wide spectrum of positions on this subject as far as women's roles in the church. We will only see a small glimpse of this subject today. So first, we should reaffirm that God cares about how we meet. More importantly, I believe that he cares why we meet. I'm sure he cares more about love over form. But as to form, we know that God is not a God of disorder. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 20, Paul, Paul says this, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, so that you may find me, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, we read that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. God was very detailed in his direction to the nation of Israel as far as their structure for where they worshipped and how they worshipped. There's much less direction in the New Testament to the church, um, but there are some direct guidelines as well as a pattern for the early church or of the early church that we observe in the New Testament. So I would like to look at this subject in the following manner. The umbrella of the subject being the continuous story of the Bible where the God of the universe is revealing himself to us, his creation. First, we're going to look at prominent women in the Old and New Testaments as to their contributions and roles that they played in the places that God had placed them for his purposes and his glory. Then we're going to look at Jesus' teaching regarding women through his word and deed and their role in his ministry. Then we're going to look specifically at Paul's teaching on women's roles and perhaps the apparent contradiction in what Paul taught and what we see women doing. And then if there are actual contradictions, how do we reconcile them based on biblical context 
biblical culture and who the teaching was directed towards. Then we want to touch on, <clears throat> was there a cultural bias when the Plymouth Brethren denomination began toward women? Is there a current cultural bias that is shaping our current views? And are either of these biases something to correct for or just be aware of? And finally, what are the traditional brethren views on women and their roles in the church? And if we have deviated from them, then how? So first off, we see in the Old Testament some amazing women. Miriam, she was a prophetess. She led the Israelites in worship in Exodus 15, 20, and 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 4, Miriam is listed as one of the three leaders of Israel during the Exodus, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam was there when Moses was fetched out of the Nile River and then was innovative and bold in her preservation of his life. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Miriam was judged for sin, not for being a woman. She was judged for the sin of envy. Miriam, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, and they said, Has not the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? And the Lord heard it, and she was judged for that. <clears throat> Deborah, in the time of the judges, we see in Judges chapter 4 and 5 um, that God called this woman Deborah, uh, to lead the people. She was judge, jury, and executioner. Um, I have three girls, and somehow <coughs> one of them was always the judge, the other was the jury, and somebody else was the executioner. <coughs> and they may have actually, you know, intermingled those roles, but there was the judge, jury, and executioner. <coughs> but we see in Judges chapter 4 that... Um, the children of Israel were oppressed, and Deborah, a prophetess, a wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned for Barak, the son of Abonam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zeb Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. But Barak said to her, I will go. If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you nevertheless, 
The road on which you are going will not lead for your glory, for the Lord will send Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So we see she was a powerful woman. She led, she led the nation politically, spiritually, and in a military sense. And in Judges chapter 5, we see her theology, which I won't read it, but it included courage, zeal for the Lord, and hope. And then we have Huldah, which none of you have ever heard of before, probably. But when King Josiah uh, responded to the reading of the Torah and realizes the failure of the nation of Israel, um, Huldah is chosen, not because there were no men, but because she was exceptional. In 2 Kings 22, verses 12 through 14, the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Hakayim, the son of Shaphan, and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Stephan, the secretary, and Ashiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and the people, and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book, to do all that is written concerning us. So Hilkah the priest, and Achaim, and Achbor, and Shaphan, and Ashiah went to Huldah the prophetess, and they talked with her. In the Old Testament, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the spirituality of Hannah, the Shumanite woman, the wife of noble character that is praised by King Lemuel in Proverbs chapter 31, and their impact on the nation and their families. There were amazing women in the New Testament as well. Let's begin with Mary, the mother of the Messiah. Mary was responsible for the upbringing of Jesus and his brother James. James clearly was influenced by his mother, as seen in James 1, 9 through 11, and verse 27. He speaks of rich and poor, of widows and orphans, of which Mary was a widow, and he himself technically was an orphan. In verse 27 of James 1, we read, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We see the beautiful poem in Luke chapter 1, Mary's Magnificat, and in it we, we see themes of justice for the poor. Justice for the poor and the marginalized. Judgment for the oppressors, holiness, and God's faithfulness, to name a few. <coughs> Mary is seen as an intelligent young woman who knows that God has grace for her ethnic community and for all who believe. She was not, surprising, not surprisingly a remarkable woman. And recall how young she was at the time when she made this wonderful proclamation proclamation. <clears throat> We've often rehearsed that she was just a teenager, and yet she had this beautiful expression of, um, of God's love and grace for his people. Junia, another household name, was mentioned in Romans 16, verse 7. The NIV renders it that she was outstanding among the apostles. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, 
They were well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. To be an apostle <coughs> is quite an affirmation of the closeness of the relationship of that person to the Lord, but to be called outstanding is, well, simply outstanding. Priscilla, a name maybe we're more familiar with, she was born in Rome in Acts 18, verse 2 and 26. We see Priscilla and Aquila come onto the scene. And Priscilla is listed first as the wife, which is unusual. She's listed before her husband in the biblical text. And together they, Priscilla and Aquila, explained or taught uh, Apollos the way of God. She was a theological teacher and a co-worker with Paul in verse 26 again of Acts 18. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Phoebe, in Romans <coughs> chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She was a deacon and a benefactor toward Paul and others. The word used here for deacon is the same uh, whether it's male or female. And Paul speak, asks Rome to receive her, roll out the red carpet for Phoebe, um, essentially is what he's saying. She may have actually been the courier carrying his letter to the Romans. And if she were the courier, then she would have been responsible to not only deliver the letter, but to read it and explain it. She would have had to have read it out loud. As no husband is mentioned, <coughs> she most likely was single. Then we have Anna, the prophetess, at the birth of Jesus, when he's coming into the temple. <coughs> and she was one who was individually and specifically commended as waiting for the Messiah. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived her life with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, <coughs> worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. We have Lydia in Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. She was a Gentile. <coughs> she was a successful businesswoman who was also a worshiper of God. And she responded to Paul's message when she heard it and invited Paul and those traveling with him to come into her home. She apparently had the church then meeting in her home in Acts 16:40, <coughs> when Paul was released from prison it says they visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. In Acts 21.9, Philip, the evangelist, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on men and women with sons and daughters prophesying. In Acts 2. 17 through 18, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out <coughs> my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, 
and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, <clears throat> even on your male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now let's look at Jesus in his relationship uh, to women, in his words and actions. Women, at the time of Christ here on earth, uh, were considered property and were largely not respected. <clears throat> in Matthew 12, 48 through 50, this is Jesus, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. When pointing to his disciples, Jesus communicates that both men and women were his disciples. <clears throat> In Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Cuzza, which if you recall, we had a wonderful sermon on, on this woman um, by our brother Tom Shetlick, where he spoke of her closeness uh, within um, Caesar's household, really, as being the wife of, um, as being the wife of, oh, Herod, sorry, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we see women included in the disciples who were traveling with him, Jesus, and they were both of high and low social status, and they were supporting the Jesus movement. These women were. <coughs> Mary, the sister of Mar Martha and Lazarus, sat at Jesus' feet. If you recall, Jesus was um, a guest in their home, and um, Martha was preparing the meal, and she was agitated and upset because Mary wasn't, wasn't helping her. <coughs> and um, it says in Luke 10, um, 38 to 42, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching. What's the implication of that idea of sitting at the feet of someone? Well, um, the implication is this. She became a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. Just as Paul said that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel in Acts 22.3, Mary is now sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. Perhaps this is what Martha was really upset about. My sister has joined this band of men. What will the neighbors say? What will the family think? Jesus addresses this when he says to Martha, you are anxious about and troubled about many things. I understand, and Mary has chosen well. We have the Bible that we love and enjoy as we study it, and we're accustomed to its stories. But consider how remarkable the stories are and the teaching of Jesus is concerning women and the inclusion of women. Recall again at the time that women were of a, a, lower, a lower place. And, Jesus, and uh, I'm going to go through a lot of scripture here, but I want, 
I want us to see that, that this is all coming out of Scripture. As I said at the beginning, that the Bible is, is a continuous story of God's revelation to us, and in that, we're seeing, we're seeing the unfolding of some of these things. So at Jesus' first sermon uh, in Luke chapter 4, he says, um, after he has um, not been received well, he says that, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So at Jesus' first sermon, he is including women, a woman, a Gentile, and a Gentile leader, both heroes of faith. We see the twin parables of the mending of the uh, garment and the making of wine. Um, in chapter 5, um, verses 36 through 39, and it's talking about sewing a piece of, of new cloth on an old garment and putting wine into wineskins and so on. And the point here is not the parable itself, but the, the uh, mending of the garment. That was woman's work, and the making of wine was men's work. Jesus, again, is bringing men and women together in his teaching. Jesus shows love for repentant sinners. The woman that um, was at Simon's house, who was a sinner, who came weeping and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Um, Jesus affirms that her sins are forgiven. And then when we look at the publican, the tax collector, and the Pharisee praying. Um, and the, the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man over there, if you recall the story. And the, and the publican stands afar off, the tax collector stands afar off and beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man... That man went down justified. But he, Jesus is, is showing a deep love for repentant sinners, both men and women. Answered prayer in the parables. There is the parable of a friend at midnight who has out-of-town guests come in and he's not prepared to feed them. And he bangs on his neighbor's door and says, I need some food for my out-of-town guests. And it says that the... Uh, the man will answer the door just so that his neighbor will go away and stop bothering him. But it's about answered prayer, right? And then the woman before the indifferent judge, her constant looking for justice from the judge, and he answers her again to silence her. But the point is, is answered prayer of both men and women. When Jesus says in Luke 12 that there's going to be divisions because of him, the divisions are going to be brother against brother, son against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So the divisions that were going to come because of Christ 
uh, affect both men and women. In the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, um, they're both together. Uh, we had one of them before us in our, in our communion service earlier this morning. There was a lost sheep that was found, and there was rejoicing. That was a man. There was a lost coin that was found, and there was rejoicing, and that was a woman. It's just, I mean, we take these things for granted. I, I've grown up and never really looked at how parallel um, men and women are in, in Jesus' life and teaching. Um, in the resurrection, when the Pharisees were challenging him, Jesus says that there's going to be equality of men and women in the resurrection. And finally, the poor widow was praised for giving her two pence um, at the end of the book of Luke. And I'm sure that praise uh, was over those who had given more, and presumably they were men. So to summarize this, we can see that Jesus had women in his band of disciples who not only in some cases traveled with him, but also funded his ministry. Jesus shaped his teaching to communicate his message powerfully to both men and women. And the Gospels demonstrate Jesus' elevation of women to a place of equality with men. And touchingly, as an aside, at Jesus' crucifixion, <coughs> the women were always present in the background. At the resurrection, with the exception of the male angel, the women were central figures. Their love and concern overcomes their fear as they go early to the tomb. When Jesus rose from the dead, he could have appeared first to anyone he chose. John, his best friend, Peter, the leader of his disciples, any number of other candidates were available to his provincial will. He chose Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And then she became the first evangelist of Easter when she went and told the rest of the disciples. So here are just a few examples, and much more could be expanded on this subject. But I think it does us well to, revert, to rehearse things which we probably otherwise have taken for granted. Okay, now to apo the Apostle Paul's <laughs> teaching on women. We'll just come right out in the first one, 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is the passage which is primarily used to restrict what women have done in public church ministry. But to continue on as far as um, Paul's feelings toward women and things that that he said, and some of it will be rehearsing what I've already said, but in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8, Paul describes his own care for the Thessalonians as the tender care of a nursing mother for her child. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In Romans 16, 7, as I already had mentioned the name Junia, Paul mentions Junia as outstanding among the apostles, a fellow prisoner and follower of Christ before Paul was. In Romans 16.1, Paul mentions Phoebe, a deacon, to be received in a way worthy of the saints. Give her any help that she may need. She has been a great help to many, including me. <clears throat> in Romans 16.3 and 4, Paul includes women in his list of fellow workers. In Philippians 4.3, 
Paul commends Yodia and Sinchi as contending at my side for the cause of the gospel. It's ironic because I know that I've, I've heard a sermon on that, and rather than commending these two women for contending at Paul's side for the side of the gospel, it was talking about healing broken relationships. Because at the verse before that, he does say that these two women were, were at odds at each other, and he wants them to be, to be back unified, but sort of overlooked the, far, the fact that they were contending at Paul's side for the cause of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 11.15, Paul speaks of a woman praying and prophesying, albeit with the condition that her head is covered. But every woman or every wife, uh, depends on the translation, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And then in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.34, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. As the law also says, Paul speaks of women being silent in the churches. Okay, so to summarize Paul's um, position on women, we see that Paul had women that worked with him in the spread of the gospel, that he personally commends individual women for their labors and their position in the early church. Okay, so here we go. Here comes the controversy, the two areas of greatest controversy. Paul is calling for women to be silent in the churches and appears to contradict both his own teaching and practice. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, where we see a woman can pray and prophesy, even if we allow for silent praying, prophesying by definition needs to be audible. Um, Also, what appears to have been practiced in the church, as seen in Paul's letters and in the Acts, seem to include women having, having significant roles. We pr- so we, as the elders, prayerfully studied both passages that I'm making reference to here uh, about women being silent in the church. Um, <clears throat> and the silence in 1 Corinthians 14.34 um, seems to be in the context of chaos in that particular meeting. Women calling out sitting on one side, calling out, asking questions. Um, and again, back to the culture of the day, they were, the women would not have been educated the same way that men were at that time. And so they wouldn't have necessarily understood what was going on in, in the meeting. And so consequently, they were calling out. And, and there was chaos in, in the meeting in 1 Corinthians uh, that Paul was dealing with. And then the silence for women in 1 Timothy 2.12 was in the context specifically of teaching, where it says that I I don't permit a woman to to teach or have authority over a man. So as far as cultural bias, Jesus was intentional in his elevation of women as being equal with men and his disciples. Paul seems to consider the same as Jesus, women being equal as disciples. In Galatians 3, 26 through 28, in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This was countercultural to the treatment of and thoughts towards women at the time of the early church. Paul's teaching in these areas may have contained cultural elements, the question then being, was the teaching in these areas cultural 
or universal. Let's look at the um, possible bias toward women in the 1820s. When the Plymouth Brethren movement began, women were not allowed to vote and were largely second-class citizens. So there was certainly a cultural bias in the 1820s. Not saying it shaped the Plymouth Brethren as a denomination, but it, it could have been a, a factor in shaping it. And now today, our culture is a free-for-all. Uh, so just because culture that we are living in is a culture of anything goes, situational ethics, black and white in a gray world, uh, where no moral, there's no more moral absolutes, and it doesn't mean that this mentality should be a basis for our decision-making in the church. The goal of the church should be the glory of God, cultural or not. So, to summarize, while we can be aware of cultural bias influencing our interpretation of Scripture, and we should guard against it, allowing Scripture to be the greatest source of its own commentary. And that's what I hope I've tried to paint the picture of today, is the broad view of scripture commentating on itself on this subject, which is why we've looked at this role of women throughout scripture. We haven't, as elders, reached our current position from a belief that Paul's teaching is culturally based. Um, so it's a difficult area. As far as decisions we make as elders, we've treated this with great care, prayer, and asking for guidance of the Holy Spirit as we attempt to shepherd the local church here at Terrell Road Bible Chapel. The historical position of the Plymouth Brethren Church um, has, that the Plymouth Brethren Church as a denomination has taken has been complete silence of women in any meeting where men are present. To clarify historical position of the Plymouth Brethren, the reference refers to early, early brethren. Our current practices here at Terrell Road are well within what is typical within brethren assemblies in the United States and worldwide. To qualify the statement of complete silence, uh, many assemblies have allowed women to sing along with the men or by themselves. You can see some of this is just a little tongue-in-cheek, but also, the fellowship meeting between the breaking of bread and the 11 o'clock service could be considered a meeting of the church. It is one of the four elements mentioned in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But clearly, obviously, we don't insist on women being silenced during any of our fellowship time. So we should carefully consider the consistency of our own application of the scriptures to silence women within the church. So as we're sure you've observed, there have been changes at the chapel that are not in keeping with the early historical brethren position, and they are as follows. Women are permitted to ask questions within a mixed Bible study. When I was growing up, that would not have happened. The woman would have been whispering something to the man next to her, and then he would have asked the question or made the comment. I'm just saying my own observation. But, so we recognize that leading questions could be asked, uh, which could uh, teach or take authority from a man. And we've determined 
that if this were observed, we would deal with it on an individual basis and not a public rebuke. And I will say this has not happened. And so I'm talking about, you know, when we have a second meeting with lunch and there's conversation around with the speaker that some have wondered, can a woman ask a question or make a comment in that meeting? And, and by practice, we have allowed it, but now we're addressing it that we have determined that um, it's fine, it's acceptable. Women are permitted to give a ministry report in a public meeting. Sunday morning or Wednesday evening meeting including missionary reports and chapel ministries, for example. Again, when I was growing up, the woman would have written a report and a man would have read it for her. Uh, and, and so you've seen in practice that, that women have given these types of reports. Women are permitted to read an assigned poem or scripture. We see no distinction between this, a woman reading a poem or an assigned scripture, or having special music, other than the fact that if she has special music, she probably picked the content rather than having it assigned to her. Women are permitted to read announcements, and women are permitted to act as greeters at the Connections booth. <laughs> we love you, Lindsay. <laughs> so finally, as an exhortation, both Jesus and Paul's teaching on loving one another and being at peace with one another far exceeds the teaching in scripture on gender roles. If you have concerns, bring them to an elder or ask to come to an elders meeting rather than sitting in judgment or gossiping or slandering, which turns us full circle to 2 Corinthians 12.20 at the start of the meeting. Paul feared that he would come to a church where there was quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Let us strive to avoid all those things, but rather be characterized by Philippians 2, 2 through 4. Complete my joy by being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What we've tried to do here today is not lay out some sort of set of pharisaical rules and regulations, but to talk about principles and to look at, at the Bible itself and the role of, of women there. So this may be part of an ongoing, ongoing discussion and conversation, and I would just say blessings and peace be on you all. Christ be with you. Amen.